This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 13. The Unity of the Divine Essence in Three Persons, Taught in Scripture from the Foundation of the World. Sections. 21. Refutation of Arian, Macedonian, and Anti-Trinitarian Heresies. Caution to be observed. 22. The more modern Anti-Trinitarians, and especially Servetus, refuted. 23. Other Anti-Trinitarians refuted. No good objection that Christ is called the Son of God, since he is also called God. Impious absurdities of some heretics. 24. The name of God sometimes given to the Son absolutely as to the Father, same as to other attributes. Objections refuted. And 25. Objections further refuted. Caution to be used. Section 21. But since Satan, in order to pluck up our faith by the roots, has always provoked fierce disputes, partly concerning the divine essence of the Son and Spirit, and partly concerning the distinction of persons, since in almost every age he has stirred up impious spirits to vex the orthodox doctors on this head, and is attempting in the present day to kindle a new flame out of the old embers. It will be proper here to dispose of some of these perverse dreams. Hitherto our chief object has been to stretch out our hand for the guidance of such as are disposed to learn, not to war with the stubborn and contentious. But now the truth, which was calmly demonstrated, must be vindicated from the calumnies of the ungodly. Still, however, it will be our principal study to provide a sure footing for those whose ears are open to the word of God. Here, if any, where, in considering the hidden mysteries of Scripture, we should speculate soberly and with great moderation, cautiously guarding against allowing either our mind or our tongue to go a step beyond the confines of God's word. For how can the human minds, which has not yet been able to ascertain of what the body of the sun consists, though it is daily presented to the eye, bring down the boundless essence of God to its little measure? Nay, how can it, under its own guidance, penetrate to a knowledge of the substance of God, while unable to understand its own? Wherefore, let us willingly leave to God the knowledge of himself. In the words of Hilary, he alone is a fit witness to himself, who is known only by himself. This knowledge, then, if we would leave to God, we must conceive of him as he has made himself known, and in our inquiries make application to no other quarter than his word. On this subject we have five homilies of Chrysostom against the Anamoe, in which he endeavored, but in vain, to check the presumption of the sophists and curb their garrulity. They showed no more modesty here than they are wont to do in everything else. The very unhappy results of their temerity should be a warning to us to bring more docility than acumen to the discussion of this question, never to attempt to search after God anywhere but in his sacred word, and never to speak or think of him farther than we have it for our guide. But if the distinction of Father, Son, and Spirit, subsisting in the one Godhead, certainly a subject of great difficulty, gives more trouble and annoyance to some intellects than is meet. Let us remember that the human mind enters a labyrinth, 
whenever it indulges its curiosity, and thus submit to be guided by the divine oracles, how much soever the mystery may be beyond our reach. Section 22 It were tedious, and to no purpose toilsome, to form a catalogue of the errors by which, in regard to this branch of doctrine, the purity of the faith has been assailed. The greater part of heretics have, with their gross deliriums, made a general attack on the glory of God, deeming it enough if they could disturb and shake the unwary. From a few individuals numerous sects have sprung up, some of them rending the divine essence, and others confounding the distinction of persons. But if we hold what has already been demonstrated from Scripture, that the essence of the one God, pertaining to the Father, Son, and Spirit, is simple and indivisible, and again that the Father differs in some special property from the Son, and the Son from the Spirit, the door will be shut against Arius and Sibelius, as well as the other ancient authors of error. But as in our day have arisen certain frantic men, such as Servetus and others, who by new devices have thrown everything into confusion, it may be worthwhile briefly to discuss their fallacies. The name of Trinity was so much disliked, nay detested, by Servetus, that he charged all whom he called Trinitarians with being atheists. I say nothing of the insulting terms in which he thought proper to make his charges. The sum of his speculations was that a threefold deity is introduced wherever three persons are said to exist in his essence, and that this triad was imaginary, inasmuch as it was inconsistent with the unity of God. At the same time, he would have it that the persons are certain external ideas which do not truly subsist in the divine essence, but only figure God to us under this or that form, that at first, indeed, there was no distinction in God, because originally the Word was the same as the Spirit. But ever since Christ came forth God of God, another Spirit, also a God, had proceeded from him. But although he sometimes cloaks his absurdities in allegory, as when he says that the eternal Word of God was the Spirit of Christ with God, and the reflection of the idea, likewise that the Spirit was a shadow of deity, he at last reduces the divinity of both to nothing, maintaining that, According to the mode of distribution, there is a part of God as well in the Son as in the Spirit, just as the same Spirit substantially is a portion of God in us, and also in wood and stone. His absurd babbling concerning the person of the Mediator will be seen in its own place. The monstrous fiction that a person is nothing else than a visible appearance of the glory of God needs not a long refutation. For when John declares that before the world was created, the Logos was God, John 1, one he shows that he was something very different from an idea. But if even then and from the remotest eternity that Logos, who was God, was with the Father, and had his own distinct and peculiar glory with the Father, John 17.5, he certainly could not be an external or figurative splendor, but must necessarily have been a hypostasis which dwelt inherently in God himself. But although there is no mention made of the Spirit antecedent to the account of the creation, he is not there introduced as a shadow, but as the essential power of God, where Moses relates that the shapeless mass was unborn by him, Genesis 1-2. It is obvious that the eternal Spirit always existed in God, seeing he cherished and sustained the confused materials of heaven and earth before they possessed order or beauty. 
Assuredly, he could not then be an image or representation of God, as Servetus dreams. But he is elsewhere forced to make a more open disclosure of his impiety when he says that God, by his eternal reason, decreeing a son to himself, in this way assumed a visible appearance. For if this be true, no other divinity is left to Christ than is implied in his having been ordained a son by God's eternal decree. Moreover, those phantoms which Servetus substitutes for the hypostases, he so transforms as to make new changes in God. But the most execrable heresy of all is his confounding both the Son and Spirit, promiscuously with all the creatures. For he distinctly asserts that there are parts and partitions in the essence of God, and that every such portion is God. This he does especially when he says that the spirits of the faithful are co-eternal and consubstantial with God, although he elsewhere assigns a substantial divinity, not only to the soul of man, but to all created things. Section 23 This pool has bred another monster, not unlike the former. For certain restless spirits, unwilling to share the disgrace and obloquy of the impiety of Servetus, have confessed that there were indeed three persons, but added, as a reason, that the Father, who alone is truly and properly God, transfused his divinity into the Son and Spirit when he formed them. Nor do they refrain from expressing themselves in such shocking terms as these, that the Father is essentially distinguished from the Son and Spirit by this, that he is the only essentiator. Their first pretext for this is that Christ is uniformly called the Son of God. From this they infer that there is no proper God but the Father. But they forget that although the name of God is common also to the Son, yet it is sometimes, by way of excellence, ascribed to the Father, as being the source and principle of divinity. And this is done in order to mark the simple unity of essence. They object that if the Son is truly God, he must be deemed the Son of a person, which is absurd. I answer that both are true, namely that he is the Son of God because he is the Word, begotten of the Father before all ages. For we are not now speaking of the person of the Mediator, and yet that for the purpose of explanation regard must be had to the person, so that the name God may not be understood in its absolute sense, but as equivalent to the Father. For if we hold that there is no other God than the Father's, this rank is clearly denied to the Son. In every case where the Godhead is mentioned, we are by no means to admit that there is an antithesis between the Father and the Son, as if to the former only the name of God could competently be applied. For assuredly, the God who appeared to Isaiah was the one true God, and yet John declares that he was Christ, Isaiah 6 and John 12:41. He who declared by the mouth of Isaiah that he was to be for a stone of stumbling to the Jews was the one God, and yet Paul declares that he was Christ, Isaiah 8.14 and Romans 9.33. He who proclaims by Isaiah, unto me every knee shall bow, is the one God, yet Paul again explains that he is Christ, Isaiah 45.23 and Romans 14.11. To this we may add the passages quoted by an apostle, Thou, Lord, hast laid the foundations of the earth. Let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews 1.10, Psalm 102.26, and 97.7. All these apply to the one God. 
and yet the apostle contends that they are the proper attributes of Christ. There is nothing in the cavil that what properly applies to God is transferred to Christ, because he is the brightness of his glory. Since the name of Jehovah is everywhere applied to Christ, it follows that, in regard to deity, he is of himself. For if he is Jehovah, it is impossible to deny that he is the same God who elsewhere proclaims by Isaiah, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 44.6 We would also do well to ponder the words of Jeremiah, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Jeremiah 10.11 Whence it follows conversely that he whose divinity Isaiah repeatedly proves from the creation of the world is none other than the Son of God. And how is it possible that the Creator, who gives to all, should not be of himself, but should borrow his essence from another? Whosoever says that the Son was essentiated by the Father, denies his self-existence. Against this, however, the Holy Spirit protests when he calls him Jehovah. On the supposition, then, that the whole essence is in the Father only, the essence becomes divisible, or is denied to the Son, who, being thus robbed of his essences, will be only a titular God. If we are to believe these triflers, divine essence belongs to the Father only, on the ground that he is sole God and essentiator of the Son. In this way, the divinity of the Son will be something abstract from the essence of God or the derivation of a part from the whole. On the same principle, it must also be conceded that the Spirit belongs to the Father only. For if the derivation is from the primary essence, which is proper to none but the Father, the Spirit cannot justly be deemed the Spirit of the Son. This view, however, is refuted by the testimony of Paul when he makes the Spirit common both to Christ and the Father. Moreover, if the person of the Father is expunged from the Trinity, in what will he differ from the Son and Spirit except in being the only God? They confess that Christ is God and that he differs from the Father. If he differs, there must be some mark of distinction between them. Those who place it in the essence manifestly reduce the true divinity of Christ to nothing, since divinity cannot exist without essence, and indeed without entire essence. The Father certainly cannot differ from the Son unless he have something peculiar to himself and not common to him with the Son. What then do these men show as the mark of distinction? If it is in the essence, let them tell whether or not he communicated essence to the Son. This he could not do in part, merely for if it were impious to think of a divided God. And besides, on this supposition, there should be a rending of the divine essence. The whole entire essence must therefore be common to the Father and the Son, and if so, in respect of essence, there is no distinction between them. If they reply that the Father, while essentiating, still remains the only God, being the possessor of the essence, then Christ will be a figurative God, one in name or semblance only, and not in reality, because no property can be more peculiar to God than essence, according to the words, I am hath sent me unto you. Exodus 3.4 Section 24 The assumption that whenever God is mentioned absolutely, the Father only is meant, may be proved erroneous by many passages. Even in those which they quote in support of their views, they betray a lamentable inconsistency because the name of Son occurs there by way of contrast, showing that the other name God is used relatively 
and in that way confined to the person of the Father. Their objection may be disposed of in a single word. Were not the Father alone the true God, he would, say they, be his own Father. But there is nothing absurd in the name of God being specially applied, in respect of order and degree, to him who not only of himself begat his own wisdom, but is the God of the Mediator, as I will more fully show in its own place. For ever since Christ was manifested in the flesh, he is called the Son of God. Not only because begotten of the Father before all worlds he was the eternal word, but because he undertook the person and office of the mediator that he might unite us to God. Seeing they are so bold in excluding the Son from the honor of God, I would fain know whether, when he declares that there is none good but one, that is God, he deprives himself of goodness. I speak not of his human nature, lest perhaps they should object, that whatever goodness was in it was derived by gratuitous gift. I ask whether the eternal word of God is good, yes or no. If they say no, their impiety is manifest. If yes, they refute themselves. Christ seeming at the first glance to disclaim the name of good, Matthew 19.17, rather confirms our view. Goodness, being the special property of God alone, and yet being at the time applied to him in the ordinary way of salutation. His rejection of false honor intimates that the goodness in which he excels is divine. Again, I ask whether, when Paul affirms that God alone is immortal, wise, and true, 1 Timothy 1.17, he reduces Christ to the rank of beings mortal, foolish, and false. Is not he immortal, who from the beginning had life so as to bestow immortality on angels? Is not he wise, who is the eternal wisdom of God? Is not he true who is truth itself? I ask, moreover, whether they think Christ should be worshipped. If he claims justly that every knee shall bow to him, it follows that he is the God who, in the law, forbade worship to be offered to any but himself. If they insist on applying to the Father only the words of Isaiah, I am, and besides me there is none else, Isaiah 44, 6, I turn the passage against themselves, since we see that every property of God is attributed to Christ. There is no room for the cavil that Christ was exalted in the flesh in which he humbled himself, and in respect of which all power is given to him in heaven and on earth. For although the majesty of king and judge extends to the whole person of the mediator, yet had he not been God manifested in the flesh, he could not have been exalted to such a height without coming into collision with God. And the dispute is admirably settled by Paul when he declares that he was equal with God before he humbled himself and assumed the form of a servant, Philippians 2, 6, 7. Moreover, how could such equality exist if he were not that God whose name is Yah and Jehovah, who rides upon the cherubim, is king of all the earth and king of ages? Let them glamour as they may. Christ cannot be robbed of the honor described by Isaiah. Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him, Isaiah 25.9. For these words describe the advent of God the Redeemer, who was not only to bring back the people from Babylonish captivity, but restore the church and make her completely perfect. Nor does another cavil avail them, that Christ was God and his Father. For though we admit that in respect of order and gradation, the beginning of divinity is in the Father, we hold it a detestable fiction to maintain that essence is proper to the Father alone, 
as if he were the deifier of the Son. On this view, either the essence is manifold, or Christ is God only in name and imagination. If they grant that the Son is God, but only in subordination to the Father, the essence which in the Father is unformed and unbegotten will in him be formed and begotten. I know that many who would be thought wise deride us for extracting the distinction of persons from the words of Moses when he introduces God as saying, Let us make man in our own image. Genesis one twenty six. Pious readers, however, see how frigidly and absurdly the colloquy were introduced by Moses, if there were not several persons in the Godhead. It is certain that those whom the Father addresses must have been untreated. But nothing is untreated except the one God. Now then, unless they concede that the power of creating was common to the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the power of commanding common, it will follow that God did not speak thus inwardly with himself, but addressed other extraneous architects. In fine, there is a single passage which will at once dispose of these two objections. The declaration of Christ that God is a spirit, John 4.24, cannot be confined to the Father only, as if the word were not of a spiritual nature. But if the name spirit applies equally to the Son as to the Father, I infer that under the indefinite name of God the Son is included. He adds immediately after that the only worshippers approved by the Father are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And hence I also infer that because Christ performs the office of teacher under a head, he applies the name God to the Father, not for the purpose of destroying his own divinity, but for the purpose of raising us up to it, as it were, step by step. Section 25 The hallucination consists in dreaming of individuals, each of whom possesses a part of the essence. The scriptures teach that there is essentially but one God, and therefore that the essence both of the Son and Spirit is unbegotten. But inasmuch as the Father is first in order, and of himself begat his own wisdom, he, as we lately observed, is justly regarded as the principle and fountain of all the Godhead. Thus God, taking indefinitely, is unbegotten, and the Father, in respect of his person, is unbegotten. For it is absurd to imagine that our doctrine gives any ground for alleging that we establish a quaternion of gods. They falsely and calumniously ascribe to us the figment of their own brain, as if we virtually held that three persons emanate from one essence. Whereas it is plain from our writings that we do not disjoin the persons from the essence, but interpose a distinction between the persons residing in it, if the persons were separated from the essence, there might be some plausibility in their argument, as in this way there would be a trinity of gods, not of persons comprehended in one God. This affords an answer to their futile question, whether or not the essence concurs in forming the trinity, as if we imagined that three gods were derived from it. Their objection, that there would thus be a trinity without a god, originates in the same absurdity. Although the essence does not contribute to the distinction, as if it were a part or member, the persons are not without it, or external to it. For the Father, if he were not God, could not be the Father, nor could the Son possibly be Son unless he were God. We say, then, that the Godhead is absolutely of itself, and hence also we hold that the Son, regarded as Son and without reference to person, 
is also of himself, though we also say that regarded as son, he is of the father. Thus his essence is without beginning, while his person has its beginning in God. And indeed the Orthodox writers who in former times spoke of the Trinity used this term only with reference to the persons. To have included the essence in the distinction would not only have been an absurd error, but gross impiety. For those who class the three thus, essence, son, and spirit, plainly do away with the essence of the Son and Spirit. Otherwise, the parts being intermingled would merge into each other, a circumstance which would vitiate any distinction. In short, if God and Father were synonymous terms, the Father would be deifier in a sense which would leave the Son nothing but a shadow, and the Trinity would be nothing more than the union of one God with two creatures. (laughs) Thank you.